Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. It was a controversial decision. More than a million students travelling across the country and across the world to attend university in person. It sort of reads like the opening scene of Contagion 2. University presidents will go down as the new agents of superspread who have decided to prioritise their own economic well-being over the health of their communities. In the weeks that followed, halls have been locked down, students have been asking for their money back, and among staff there have been complaints of coercion from management and rumblings of industrial action. People are really scared, yeah. People feel like their safety and their health is completely in danger. This has led to outbreaks. Could the experience of universities challenge the whole idea of what it means to be COVID safe? Not just in lecture theatres, but in offices everywhere. And for some universities, could this crisis be an existential threat? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, will COVID-19 change universities forever? The government has defended its decision to allow hundreds of thousands of students in England to return to university for the new term. Students across the UK have been speaking of their fears and frustrations after being forced into lockdown. Like, we've barely got any milk and bread to last us till Monday. We can't do our washing. If they knew this was going to happen, what was the point of making us all come here if we're going to do online lessons? And this is all just weeks into a new term. Outbreaks, lockdowns and frustration. If anyone should have seen it coming, you'd think universities, seats of learning and research, would have been the ones to predict it. In fact, they did. Many of their own staff, academics advising the government and the public, issued warnings over the summer. And on Monday, new documents from SAGE were quietly published on a government website. They showed that scientists had advised against reopening weeks ago. And yet, more than 15,000 staff and students have already been infected. Some people are even linking this to the rapid rise in COVID cases, both in the UK and in other countries. Morning. Thanks for having me. Scott Galloway is a business professor at NYU. 
when it comes to universities and their handling of the pandemic, he's not holding back. What did you think when you first heard that universities wanted students to come back in person this autumn? That they were prioritizing their endowments and their financial health over the health of their communities. Really? I mean, have you gone back? No. I told my uh, leadership at NYU Stern that I wasn't returning to campus until there was uh, a vaccine. If you think about universities and how the product is delivered, it's delivered with uh, kids or students sitting shoulder to shoulder in rooms where oftentimes the windows are hermetically sealed, the ventilation systems are older, if not outdated, and the whole point is to talk. You know, there are a few environments that could have been better invented to be allies or super spreaders for the virus. Last week, the US Center for Disease Control updated its coronavirus guidance. Scientists now think the virus can spread a bit like smoke. In enclosed rooms, over a long period of time, tiny particles from our breath are suspended in the air. The fear is that social distancing isn't always enough to keep people safe. So I said I wasn't coming on campus, and to their credit, they've been comfortable with that. I'm now teaching 12 sessions totally remote on Zoom. More from Scott Galloway later. Meanwhile, in the UK, we've been speaking to academics who are deeply worried about being forced into workplaces that they say are unsafe. They talk to us on condition of anonymity. They're worried about reprisals from university management. One lecturer wrote to us, Stress levels are beyond anything I've ever experienced, and I am in tears at some point every day. Every academic I speak to is in the same position. There's already been a spike of cases at my university. At the same time, the university is refusing to consider any further move online, and in fact is trying to add more face-to-face hours. I've never been more angry at my employer, and I'm not alone in actively looking for a way out of academia. One of our producers, James, spoke on the phone with another senior academic at a top university. He's been having an especially tough time. The first two times, numbers were announced by an email to all of us, staff and students. Then I learned that those numbers doubled from the local newspaper. This is what he told us, read by an actor to protect his identity. If we don't want to go physically into the classroom, if we want to teach remotely, we have to go through these HR procedures. And I'm I'm in the middle of one that isn't finished yet. It would be pretty catastrophic if I were identifiable, I think. Yeah. OK. I'm a professor. I've been there a long time. I get good teaching feedback. I've done admin and research things that have been important to the institution and... Yeah, I have to go through these very oppositional meetings with people in HR. What's the thing that you're concerned about? What's the, what's the worry? I don't think I'm in a high-risk category for death, and that's what the occupational health person that saw me is like. Well, you know, you're not high-risk for dying. <laughs> I'm like, OK, that's fine. But Now, we won't go into detail here, but this professor told us that he has significant caring responsibilities at home. He says he's afraid that if he gets ill, he won't be able to take care of his family and that he might pass the virus on to vulnerable people. I have a colleague who's younger and fitter than me and she and her husband got it in March and then they had long Covid for Mm. six months and she's just starting to feel better now. 
So that's my concern. Yeah, and it's it's really unpredictable, I guess. And it is really unpredictable. So to be in a classroom, it's supposed to be socially distanced. The students now are supposed to wear masks. Although at first, when they were telling us we had to go in, masks were not compulsory.、Mm. You know, a lot of those buildings are poorly ventilated and don't have windows that open. Those sorts of things, you know, it's aerosol transmission. Once it becomes clear that COVID is changing the world, what's the first that you hear from the university about what's going to happen in September? It was late spring, and they just told us this is how we're going to do it. There was no consultation really. Then the students were hustled into coming back. They were told you must come back because there's going to be a significant amount of in-person teaching, and if they wanted to request remote learning, so this was going on over the summer, they had to fill in a form. But I've heard a lot of students saying that they requested it and were refused it. So there was this pressure to turn up. And so this was a situation from the point of view of the students. These are the same people who've been through the A levels. Fiasco. Yeah, yeah. And and so okay, you've you've had your offer accepted. You need to be here in person. They were promised in-person teaching. It's frustrating because a lot of us feel we weren't the ones that made that promise. Did you have to say somewhere, you know, you would prefer not to do in person? And then does that kick off a a process in the university? We got this message saying, if you want to request online teaching, you have to go to occupational health. I did that in the summer. Set out my reasons to do with care and family, and that got delayed because the person who I was supposed to speak to resigned, which is interesting to me in itself. I've got colleagues who are immune deficient and live with people who are shielding and have leukemia and things like this, who've been told no, you're fit to go back to the classroom, and I presume that comes from senior management. So, if you say that you're anxious, for example, the idea of going in the classroom is causing you anxiety, or not to sleep, or stress, or any of these things, then you're told to have cognitive behavioural therapy. But the, but the anxiety that you were describing, I guess, would be I'm worried that I will catch this very real thing, which has real effects, which is unpredictable, which might cause problems for me. You know, a kind of realistic thing to worry about. Yeah. It's a realistic thing. It's not unicorns, and my job is to be in a room with young people who we know have rising infection rates at the moment. My job is to be inside in a room with them talking. It's literally the worst thing you can do. So then you have to have another meeting with HR. What did they say at the HR meeting? What are your concerns then? Uh, so outline those. Do I not have confidence in all the safety measures that have been put in place, like the larger size classrooms and so on? When I talked about concerns about it being aerosols, she, she wasn't willing to accept any of that. That's the that's the thing I find very weird. You know that we have the science in the institution just being ignored. Universities are supposed to be seats of learning and rational thinking. And yet, because of their business model, they're sort of trapped in the position of not being able to respond rationally and in accordance to scientific advice, which is by and large produced by people employed by those institutions. It's presented as if you don't want to go back to work, whereas in point of fact, we are working. My anxieties, my concerns, it felt to me that the aim was to belittle them and to make me feel I was foolish for having them. 
and to contradict me that I had nothing to be frightened of. Which is to say, to use modern jargon, to gaslight you and, yeah, I would use the word bullying of that meeting. This is all being done as well, of course, by people who themselves are largely working from home. Then various things are suggested. Like if I had a teaching buddy, that might help me feel more confident so that I wouldn't be such a wet blanket. So if, if, you, if you were to take HR and occupational health up on all of the offers that are made to you, you would have a, a teaching buddy and you would discuss how to resolve your anxiety about being in close quarters with students. And then you would also have cognitive behavioural therapy, which is something that typically uh, you would go and see a GP and they would suggest to you. But that's a recommendation being made by occupational health. Yeah. And they have someone in-house, apparently, that can do that for us. That's very kind. I don't know how many people she could do. (laughs) (laughs) How much of the workforce this one employee could get through. A colleague feels that she's being forced into in-person teaching that she's not comfortable with. But because she needs her contract to be renewed, she thinks if she causes trouble that she won't be renewed, so she's doing it. Then the next day, she was told that people who've been in that classroom have been in contact with people that tested positive. So she's like, ah, I had people in my classroom who had been hanging out with people that had COVID. And so she said, okay, I should self-isolate. And her line manager said, no, you don't need to. And she said, well, I should tell the other students and they should know. And she was told by her line manager, No, you will not tell the students. If I could leave British academia, I would. Morale at my institution is the lowest I've ever known it. It's kind of rock bottom. Lots of colleagues have said that to me, and I've started applying for jobs outside the UK. I put in my first job application in July. I reached a point this summer where I thought, I'm ashamed of my institution. I'm embarrassed of it. I think the way it treats the staff is appalling and I don't want to be part of it. Well, that's awful. I used to love it. I used to be so proud of it. I still am proud of the students, but uh, I did think it was a really not perfect, but nevertheless exceptional place. We've been hearing very similar reports. Joe Grady is the General Secretary of the UCU, the University and College Union. In the past few weeks, UCU members at some universities have registered a failure to agree. It puts them on a collision course with management. The union says staff are being coerced into unsafe working environments. The universities say they're taking all the right precautions. So are masks, visors and social distancing really not enough? And will this lead to strikes? The point is, is that that isn't sufficient and the outbreaks that we've seen have demonstrated it's not sufficient. The independent SAGE report and then the government SAGE demonstrated that universities are not spaces where those mitigations will do enough to prevent outbreaks. And the government has a role to play in this because they exempted universities in the new restrictions that they brought in over a month ago, which is for most people to work from home where possible. And what are their main concerns in terms of health? I mean, do they feel like, despite the provisions taken, they do feel like their health is in danger? 
this has led to outbreaks. This has led to online delivery of teaching, which is exactly what we were calling for in the first place. But they've demanded so much needless and avoidable illness first. But those precautions they're taking, I mean, they are the same as other workplaces, you know, the use of masks and visors and keeping everybody properly socially distanced. Why isn't that reassuring? The problem is, is that universities are not like any other workplace. In any other workplace, Mm. you don't have the mass migration of at least a million people moving around the country to attend a new home. That's what's happened with universities with no functioning track and trace. I mean, does a lot of the sort of the the fear around this subject, does it come from sort of almost a, a slightly different view of the science around how the virus is actually spreading and, you know, the importance of aerosol spread in particular? No, I think this is the point that a lot of the emerging science that we are seeing about COVID is suggesting that the sorts of conditions that we see on university campuses are are not suitable uh, and are not going to stop the spread of the disease. We know that from tests in Northumbria, nine out of 10 young people who were tested positive were asymptomatic. And obviously that means that they can completely unintentionally take that virus around with them and and spread it in classrooms and in the community. We're already getting reports that, you know, even with all of the mitigations and social distancing, that members of staff are contracting COVID and that they're tracing it back to what they think are classroom activities. And where does this go? I mean, how close is it getting to industrial action? What will, what will lecturers do next? The thing is, is that industrial action is not the solution for a public health crisis. It should never have got to this point. You know, an industrial ballot takes weeks to carry out. By that time, we'll be in late November and it should not take the threat of worried and concerned staff at university withdrawing their labour for universities to do the right thing. So why do you think it is that universities are so determined to return to in-person teaching? What's behind that? I think that there's a clear problem that the government has not wanted and indeed has refused all summer long to offer to underwrite the lost income that was always going to transpire with people not attending campus and actually cash-strapped universities have dragged students back to campus and they've done so with dire consequences. Is there a danger at the end of all of this that universities could go bust? Yeah, I mean, it could be a reality that that would happen, but it doesn't need to happen. So with a crisis on campus, what happens next? And for some universities, could this winter develop into an existential threat? To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So initially, my viewpoint was the outlier. When he's not teaching at NYU... Business professor Scott Galloway is one of America's leading thinkers on big tech. He's been raising the alarm about reopening universities since the summer, and he thinks their failure to grapple with COVID could change higher education forever. And there was a great deal of propaganda to try and convince people that it was safe. And it was all sort of wrapped in a flag that we had a national obligation to welcome our students back, which was Latin for... We want parents to send in their tuition checks, and we don't want them to have any excuse not to send in their tuition checks. Slowly over time, though, when people realized that the narrative that we were going to have a vaccine and that there was going to be a small relapse in the fall, but we'd all be back in business, when it became clear that that narrative or the virus didn't get the memo regarding that narrative, I think administrations became much more... I think they realized they were wrong. And a lot of them went down this rabbit hole of opening and couldn't turn back on it. But I think they've been increasingly understanding faculty. And why do you think universities are so keen to get people back to campus? Money. This is, uh, in the U.S., we've raised tuition by 1,400% over the last 30 years. And the idea of Harvard going all remote means that you can get Netflix for $150 a year, Apple TV Plus for $60 a year, and Harvard is now a streaming video platform that costs $58,000 a year. (laughs) And I think universities recognize that if they went all remote, there'd be much greater scrutiny on just the product itself, which is uh, there are very few products you can name globally that get over $10,000, have raised their prices dramatically, operate at 70, 80, 90 points of gross margin, and haven't really improved in 30 or 40 years. If you walked into any university lecture right now, and then you had a time machine and you walked in in 1980, the fashion would be different, but not much else has changed, except except for the price. And this is sort of the fist of stone to meet the chin that is increasingly being stuck out in terms of increased tuition prices. And universities realize that this might be kind of the pin that pops the bubble, if you will, and they might come under tremendous pricing pressure. So I think this was entirely motivated around trying to protect their margins. And this is the first time that they faced sort of an exogenous threat or the same type of threat that every middle class household, the same type of threat that a lot of businesses are facing. And they'd rather just not face it. I mean, you've said in the past that universities were one of the industries that were most overdue for disruption. Has COVID just sort of accelerated that? That's exactly right. COVID is more of an accelerant than a change agent. And when you have an industry, effectively you have 4,500 universities in the United States, and 100 
get more applicants than uh, they have space. The other 4,400 are in the business of going out and trying to find applicants. They need to go sell their products and services. And because of a mix of there's a general gestalt in the United States where you failed as a parent if your kid doesn't get to college because universities have been very good at preying on the hopes and dreams of the middle class, we've essentially affected a transfer of $1.5 trillion in wealth from middle class households to universities. The cartel of universities in the United States makes OPEC look like amateurs. They raise their prices in lockstep. There is a notion that you would never want to disappoint your little girl who gets into a fantastic school by telling her you actually can't afford it. So you see households willing to incur a level of debt that is unprecedented. They sometimes borrow more money than their house is worth to try and pursue the American dream. And the reality is it's no longer an American dream. It's the American caste system. And that is in the United States, we like to think we're a meritocracy. We're not. That's BS. We're a caste system. But instead of it being your last name, it's whether or when you went to college. And if you go to college, you'll make two to three times as much as someone who doesn't. And not only if you went to college, but where you went to school. So we've entered into this sort of Hunger Games-like competition where people feel as if they have to go to school at any price. And if you look at what's happened in the United States, the two cohorts that get into the most elite universities, which is essentially an on-ramp to dividing more and more of the spoils across fewer and fewer people, they generally speaking come from two cohorts, and that is the children of rich people who are 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if they're from the 1% top income earning households, or what I would refer to as freakishly remarkable 15 to 17-year-olds that have patents and have built wells in Africa by the time they are 17. And I can prove to us that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. Education in the U.S. or higher education in the U.S. used to be the lubricant of upward mobility. It's become the new agent of casting. We have to fall back in love with the unremarkables. At UCLA, where I went to school, when I applied, there was a 60% admittance rate. Now it's 12%, meaning that it's five times as hard to get in. And we as alumni bask in this luxury item nature of our schools that they're so hard to get into. But that means your kid's not getting in. And we have, in the United States, I believe academics have transitioned from being public servants to luxury um, luxury items. I mean, what did, what did going to university mean to you when you were younger? You know, how, how has that changed? Well, it was transformative for me. The reason I'm here with you is because of the generosity of California taxpayers and the regents of the University of California that let the son of a single immigrant mother who lived and died a secretary get a fantastic education at UCLA undergrad and then a great education in graduate school at Berkeley for a total tuition for both undergrad and grad of $7,000. And I was unremarkable. And I'm not saying that as a humble brag. I was somebody who got mediocre grades. But at that point, these universities had the bandwidth and the space to let in unremarkable kids. And now we no longer have that ability. So I think there was a collective scream for middle-class households in America that are saying, I want the same opportunities you had. I want the same opportunity to get on the on-ramp into the incredible spoils of America, and I no longer have access to it because the best universities have all become drunk on exclusivity and refuse to expand their enrollments. I mean, if these changes go through because of COVID or, or because disruption was due anyway, I suppose, what will it mean for the universities who are at the top end, you know, the Ivy League or the Russell Group here, the, the Oxfords, the Cambridges? How will they be affected by the change? I don't think the truly elite universities, the Ivies, will change much because I think they've decided that exclusivity is their superpower, 
And Stanford has tripled the number of applicants it did 20 years ago, but it's decided not to increase its freshman seats because, again, they see themselves as luxury items. The opportunities are across our great public state universities that educate two-thirds of U.S. students and through a mix or an embrace of small and big tech have the opportunity to dramatically expand their enrollments. If you were to take 50% of your courses online, you effectively double the supply at a small marginal increase in cost. So it's not a question of either or, it's a question of and. And can we, is this an opportunity? Is the silver lining bigger than the cloud here where we could dramatically increase the enrollments and dramatically decrease the costs and return higher ed to its rightful and proper position of being an upward lubricant for middle-class households. And what would that do to the the sort of the bottom rung of universities, some of the smaller institutions? I mean, will they go bust? Many of them will. Um, Many of them don't deserve to be in business. So like most businesses, they'll either find a niche, they'll find a way to add more value, or they'll perish. And that's not the worst thing to happen in the world. It's the same thing that happens in private enterprise. Uh, I don't think there's any reason that many of these universities shouldn't face the same economic pressure that households across Europe and the U.S. are facing. We decide that it's a national tragedy. But the reality is these schools have not innovated. Uh, The best way to describe their offering for many of them is bad but expensive. And it's time for a reckoning, and the reckoning is overdue. When this happens, when the change comes, I mean, what would university look like? What would the experience be like for most students? Would it all be online? How does it work? Do campuses have to close? So, for example, my course now has 280 kids enrolled versus typically what is 160. This should logically, dramatically lower the costs over time. Of course, they've decided not to do that, but at some point, the kids are going to do the math and recognize that NYU is charging them $2 million for me to do what I'm doing here with you now over 12 nights for two hours and 40 minutes. That is just not sustainable. It'll be a mix. It'll be some in-person classes. It'll be some remote. We'll be able to teach more kids for less money. And just finally, coming back to the outbreaks in COVID uh, at universities, you said a few months ago that it's a matter of when, not if, universities have to close their campuses. Do you still think that'll happen before Christmas? So it'll probably take longer than that, but there's just no getting around it. There's going to be a dramatic destruction in demand. If Harvard loses 20%, if 20% of people of incoming freshmen decide to take a gap year and not attend college at what is arguably the best brand in the world of education, you can only imagine what the demand destruction is going to be up and down the food chain. And for the elite universities, it's not a problem because for every one person they let in, they reject nine, meaning they have very big pools or waiting lists to dip into to supplement the demand destruction. But as you move down the food chain, you're eventually pretty crisply going to get to universities that don't have a waiting list. And those universities will get flipped upside down financially in almost no time and will either have to reinvent themselves or go out of business. Any industry that consumes its product shoulder to shoulder, whether it's sports, leisure, travel, restaurants, or education, is facing uh, a reckoning. And that is they either reshape, adapt, or they perish. A government spokesperson told us that if staff don't feel safe, they have every confidence that university bosses would take those concerns seriously. On the finances, they said they'd brought forward £2.6 billion of tuition fee payments, 
And as a last resort, there was a scheme to assess restructuring support. Universities UK and the University Employers Association told us that bosses were listening to concerns and that they assess risk based on principles agreed with all of the trade unions. They said universities have planned tirelessly to make their campuses as safe as they can be. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, NYU business professor Scott Galloway, UCU General Secretary Joe Grady, an anonymous academic voiced by the actor Stephen Ventura. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review in your podcast app. It really helps other listeners to find us. Thanks. See you tomorrow. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>